Hi, I'm Noam Wasserman, Dean of the Sci Sim School of Business at Yeshiva University. I was a longtime professor at Harvard Business School, an entrepreneur, and a venture capitalist. I wrote the bestseller, The Founder's Dilemmas. And I'm Charlie Harari. I've been working with companies for over 10 years. And that book, The Founder's Dilemmas, and the challenges faced by the 10,000 founders in it is the basis of this podcast. We are delving into the issues faced by startups to help you avoid the pitfalls that claim so many good companies. Let's get started. And hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Founders Dilemmas Podcast. We've got an incredible show for you. And like always, let's start with our Dean. Dean, what do you have for us this week? Hey, Charlie. Great to be back with you. Uh, this week, we're actually going to have a very interesting contrast to the uh, last person that we had on. We had Ellie Portnoy, serial entrepreneur, uh, startup after startup, and being able to get into a bunch of the insights that he's gotten along that path. Uh, today, delighted to welcome Asaf Gilboa, um, who, like Ellie, was a student of mine at Harvard, but took a very different path to doing multiple startups. Uh, Asaf started out soon after the Army with founding back then. Um, and then a decade later, after doing a variety of other things, uh, he first wrote his first startup for five years, but then worked for Google, worked for Amazon, worked for Bridgewater Associates. It wasn't the get back up on the horse of founder after founder. He instead took a long break for a decade before getting back now into his second founding. And he has some very interesting reflections on the difference in him, the approaches that he's taken and how they've evolved. Um, and so it's going to give us another uh, glimpse of a repeat entrepreneur, uh, but where there's a very different uh, making of the second timer than what we saw before. So Asaf, welcome. Thank you so much for taking your time. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Okay, so let's start back with the first of the startups that you had. Um, it was coming from uh, soon after you finished in the IDF, serving in the Israeli army, uh, doing some tremendous stuff there early in the days of drone technology, and then founding in the drone space. So we can draw a direct line uh, from that uh, the past into uh, what your first of the ventures was. Um, in retrospect, how prepared were you to found that drone startup? Are there ways you could have prepared better, even though in terms of the content, uh, you were world-class in the stuff that you were doing at the IDF, and then you took that into the startup. But even then, were there things that you thought now that you should have been better prepared for? Yeah, I think it's a good question. Um, when we went, it was me and um, three founders, and then we added a four co fourth co-founder, so we were a lot of people. But when we walked into the initial founding of the drone startup, we almost like stumbled into it. We had, uh, we had an idea and we went one of our co-founders dad and he said, Hey, you guys should explore this idea. And we pretty much stumbled into, um, into the idea. And I think looking back in retrospect, we didn't really know what we were doing. We didn't really know. Um, we didn't really have a good network of people that were helping us along the way. And so everything we did, we learned from scratch. And so everything from like, oh, how do you go raise money? We didn't really know. So we, we just started taking money from friends and family. How do you recruit employees? We just grabbed our friends from the military unit. We, we started doing, we overhired and then underhired. And we did a lot of mistakes along the way because we didn't have like the ecosystem. And I will say a lot was us. A lot was 2007 Israel drone industry. There wasn't an ecosystem around us. There wasn't that much of like the VCs, the mentors, the accelerators, the things around us. 
The thing we did have, though, which I think was pretty cool, was we had come from the Israeli military from a unit that was like at the go-go years of the drone industry. So every we were in this unit that was getting every three months a new platform, every two months a new software, every couple of weeks somebody comes in with a new idea. And we had this bias for action and this ability to go back and say, okay, if we dream about it, We'll get it done. Like, well, how complicated could it be? And some of these things were pretty complicated, but it's like, how complicated could it be to open a startup and do it? And I think that we came very prepared with. We came with courage and we came with an ability to like look at the world and and know that if we put our minds to it and work pretty hard, we would we could get there. Um, but then we made all the possible mistakes along the way. Almost, yeah, all the possible mistakes. What what was the, the the biggest mistake that you think in that in that litany that was made? So I've been talking a lot to my co-founders about this. Um, I think the biggest mistake we did was we didn't understand how to even start thinking about product market fit. Like we stumbled into an early product market fit, but this idea of hey, we're gonna just go to the market, sell something, and the market will adjust to us was a big mistake. And then we were very rigid about the problem we were solving as the world changed around us. So we were doing drones, civilian drones in 2007. We had read an article from McKinsey, I think, or somebody that was like, in 2009, drone regulations will open up. And our whole startup was built on the premise that here, commercial drones are coming in two years. It's 2023. I don't think we have masses of commercial drones flying around cities nowadays. And so we had made this like regulatory bet that we didn't even know we were making on where the industry was going. Mm -hmm. And as the world adapted and as we were getting customers and things we were doing, we couldn't look at it and say, okay, that's not where the market is going. Let's change. Very good. Wow. Um, so that was a big mistake that we made yeah. early on and dragged with us for a few years. And, and that, that's, a, that's a very common mistake. And I think those that are listening um, should really adapt it into their particular business. And people do this a lot, which is they stay very, it's not their fault, right? Their mind orients around that, which is in front of it. So when you live and breathe your product or your service, right, it's normal for your mind to adapt around it and you start to become biased to it. Um, and I think it's a pretty common trap um, that founders make that they just don't take enough time to look to go outside and to and to see the market and see the regulatory environment and um, so that thing is very insightful. Yeah. yeah, if we can just probe a little bit, also the points at which you kind of realized we're not ready for this, we're making some mistakes. Um, at what point did you really get that insight um, that? We should be doing things differently than the default that we had about how to find hires, the default that we had about who to found with, the default of what to found. So I'll say, I think at the end, when we shut down, like when we came back and I went to business school afterwards, I think that was the big realization of like, I looked and said, here's how people did it, not me. And they did it amazingly. So I think coming out of the bubble we lived in and seeing other people was a big revelation. But during the process, what had happened is we ran for three years. It was actually going not bad. We were doing, we weren't doing the vision we wanted. We, our vision, our initial vision was to do commercial drone operations 
for firefighters, policemen, farmers, lease the drones from the OEMs and sell them as ours to commercial uh, users. And this is 2007 pre-DJI. So we would go to the big military OEMs and lease from the drones. And in that process, what we had learned is that the OEMs came to us and said, hey, you know what, if you're already here, how about you train uh, the squadron reestablished in this country or you help, like we did a lot of post-sale services. There was great business in the post-sale service world. We just didn't really want to do it. So we were doing this work that we didn't really want to do while we were developing our core product. And three years in, we got, we thought we were in an M&A process. We didn't even know what we were doing, but we got approached by a large North American company. And we started going through the whole, like flying over to their offices, meeting the corporate people, having that whole process. In retrospect, I don't think they were even planning to acquire us. It was more, you know, sometimes corporate uh, corporates look at startups and try to smell to see, to understand better. And so they go through this acquisition process to, to learn about your company and maybe acquire you. But in our mind, we had prepared the company for an acquisition, like once that started. And when it blew up, we basically sat down and said, okay, what do we do now? Do we still believe in what we were building before? Should we start looking back? And it was a huge hit. We, had, we were five founders, two founders left, or we changed the founder structure. We pivoted the idea. We went in a different direction. And then we hired a CTO, um, somebody that come from technology world, not our world. And wow, it blew our mind. Like the fact that somebody joined us that had like a different network, a different skill set, came from from outside the bubble we we lived in and came with new ideas. And then, oh, we didn't know we, you could even do these things with all this technology around. And we started developing IP and we ran out of money before we could like, we could actually reap the benefits of that. But that shift from like getting outside of the bubble we grew up in the military unit with my friends from the military and then selling to the same people that we knew from the industry and going back and then coming out of the bubble pretty much like hit us in the face saying, wow, there's such a huge world out there, things we don't know. Um, we suddenly understood how, if before we were arrogant, suddenly here we were humble to understand how much we don't know, not knowing how much you don't know was a big deal in that transition. Yeah, yeah. so the first startup you had uh, essentially five drone operators from the IDF. Um, I assume you were able to tell yourselves a story about how we're so different from each other. We cover so many different domains. Um, uh, but then uh, the realization you had from that CTO who were truly different, um, then shaped how you went and uh, built your founding team, uh, for the most recent startup. Can you talk a little bit about the change in your co-founder decisions and the, uh, the, the insights that you got a decade ago that are now shaping how you're doing the new startup? Yeah. So we were, we started me and a friend and then another friend joined and then another friend, then a bit later, the fifth friend joined and the way it was like we were, we were sitting and saying oh you know a meet our friend who's in the with us in the unit he's so good at operations let's and zeev our friend in the unit he's so good with technology so he'll be in charge of technology and so we just like we went through the people we knew in our head and just had that template going through and the idea of we're all the same drone operators from the same unit not even different units and but you know, in your friends group, you're like, this person's a little bit more like this, this person's a little bit more like that. And we brought people together. Looking back now, I know what they've done afterwards. We've all gone down 
very similar paths, not completely similar, but same trajectory kind of path. And once that CTO came, he said, no, this co-founder didn't really know technology. This guy that's been writing code since he's nine, he actually knows technology. Right. And you understand what's out there and what's what's in the world. And then, you know, now I've gone through, it took about a decade in between the two when I went to HBS and I saw how big uh, corporate looks and how hedge funds looks. And now when I look at David, my co-founder, and he's a top-notch world-class technologist, I know what a top-notch world-class technologist looks like. And when I look at Guy, my co-founder, and I know he's a person that's built companies and done growth marketing and knows how to build products, I know, I know how a person that knows how to build products looks. And I think that lack of templates early on of what excellence looks like, what actually having a skill set looks like at a at a um, at a first class level was very much missing. And if I had to give one advice, you know, to people is if you grew up in a bubble, be very careful about grabbing all your friends from the same bubble. If your dorm room, your dorm yeah. room, dorm roommate is the person you're going to, like what's the chance that the most diversifying person that you know is the person that's sitting next to you in class? Um, in the same class, in the same school, in the same place. Um, anyway, that's one of my conclusions. Yeah. yeah just I, to draw some things back to our first season. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Oh, you want to go ahead? Yeah. No, that's Let's exactly where I was going. <laughs> that's where I was going. For those that are, that are listening now, in our first season, we spent a lot of time on this in terms of fan, friends and family. And the mistake that entrepreneurs make is confusing the, the the personal relationship with the professional relationship and assuming that it'll be awesome. We're, we're married anyways, let's do this together or we're best friends. Uh, you end up, you, you need the people that are going to be diverse enough for the product or for the service, not for the relationship. Um, but yeah, I think, I think, I think where, I think what you're highlighting for us, Asaf is something that's, that's very interesting and nuanced that I think is important, which is it's not just that people that say, Hey, I want to work with my friend. Let's start a startup. People actually think their friends are world-class something else's because they live in a bubble. And in that bubble, their brain just gets used to five people. And in the five people, they're the best at this thing because their data set is so small that they actually convince them, no, 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 my, really, my friend is, he's just better than you and you don't know anybody else. And, and I think that's a uniqueness to what we've been teaching and what Badina has been teaching earlier in our podcast series about finding people that are diverse. That this, what you're adding is you may not even know that you're making a mistake because the bias that is inside you, to quote a great Israeli psychologist slash economist, Daniel Kahneman, that you don't even realize the bias that you have. And when it comes to co-founders, it's going to make a massive impact in your ability to run a company. So get out there and see the world before you make these big decisions. Yeah, I'll even double down on that for a second. The five co-founders we were at the first startup all grew up to be amazing world-class people. Like you go through, if you Google them, some of them are like world-renowned names in wh where they sit today. And so it's not that they weren't amazing. They were amazing. We were just yeah. all the same. Yeah. It was just not diversified. So it's not even a yeah. quality question. It's not that you don't see great people. You could be at the school yeah. where there's great people around you. It's a diversification question versus a quality question. Yeah, oh, yeah for sure. And it's, it's in every environment. Yeah, the powerful pull of homophily, which is 
but we had talked about in that first season, the natural inclination for birds of a feather to feel much more comfortable with each other, to be able to be easier to find each other. Um, and you had a collecting ground for them in the army. Um, essentially, it was let's concentrate all of these people on a single task, have them be pulling all in the same direction. But it means that you're going to be even more similar to each other than yeah. a random draw that you're going to have of the usual people. Um, let's talk a little bit more about how the army shaped that for you. We've talked about the blueprint that you bring, like the mental mindset of uh, how you have done things until now, and then how founders apply that to their startups. Talk a little bit about the blueprint that you developed in the army, how it shaped how you did things within the drone startup. Uh, was it a plus? Was it a minus in terms of the very strong uh, blueprint that you're bringing from the IDF? Yeah, I'll say, I think there's two really good things we took from the military. And then there's a few things or one or two things that were, that I think we took and we shouldn't have taken. So the two things we took, one, and I said this a bit earlier, was this courage, bias for action, belief that you can do the unthinkable. Like many times the military, especially in units at the edge, pushes you to do things that nobody's done before you. Um, and you wake up in the morning, you're like, okay, that's possible. Like I, two weeks ago, this wasn't possible. People play, came together in a room, put their minds together, and now something happened in the world that's changed. So that was a big deal. The military, the other thing that happened in the military that was a big deal was, and I think we were fortunate to, to serve under people that were amazing, but we learned excellence. We learned what it, what it means to take any event, whether it went well or poorly and learn from it and debrief successes the same as you debrief failures um, and not debrief the outcome, debrief the process and did, are we proud of the process and what we did. And I think a lot of that came into the startup and a lot of the reason we managed to survive five years and wow our customers and build, even if we didn't build the thing we wanted to build came from being actually an excellent organization. The two things that we didn't get that we got from the military that I think were bad was we didn't understand how deadly bureaucracy is early on in the life of a startup, how much process doesn't matter early in the life of a startup. And we would do, and this is a story, we would do meeting summaries. We would go sit with like whatever, an investor or whatever, and then we'd type out in a template like we did in the military investor name, what did we talk about? What are the next tasks? And then put it in a, in a document and put it in the folder. Nobody ever opened the folder. And the time that was spent writing the meeting summaries, because that's just what we knew in the military. Every time you had a meeting, you wrote a summary. And we took that and you look back and like, why? Why did we do that process that made no sense? It had a cost when you're limited in resources and time. And the other thing we had was this concept of how organizational structures are, and we never really knew how a startup looks. So the anecdote, I think you told this to Norm earlier, was we came, we got offices, and we had an empty space, like this empty space, a ballet studio, and we, whatever, the owner let us renovate it. We said, okay, how are we gonna renovate it? And each one of us, we were all captains. We all wanted a room with a big table, in the middle so that we could have meetings. So we'd had like all the space was turned into four, we were just four part, four rooms there. And luckily our neighbors were these two designers and they walk in and we just laugh. Like that's not how you build startups. And they changed the design and it was common space with a room and a place and open. And 
the thing in a meeting room and, and the thing we realized, we didn't even know how startups looked. It's not that we didn't know, we didn't have, we didn't even know how, a, like how you're supposed to work in a startup. All our thinking process was, okay, it's all, you come to my room and we have a meeting about the thing on my agenda. And then I come to your room and we have a thing about your, it, we, we had this bureaucratic corporate kind of approach to, to life that we had to shake off um, and really didn't have a lot of people around us. That, that knew how to do that. No, it's well, a great microcosm and a metaphor for that blueprint and how it translated into a radically different uh, approach than it would be typical from the domain. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's, it happens to be a great way in which you can be able to capture a little bit of the transition that you had to go through. Can I, can I ask about, about Google and then about Bridgewater um, and what you learned in either of those places? They're very different. Um, in terms of, at least from what I what I've learned, in terms of their culture, um, but what what are some of the I guess maybe the lessons you got from those places that you took with you as well? I spent a summer at Google, but then I spent a couple of years at Amazon on the drone program at Amazon, and then at mm-hmm. Bridgewater for five years. And so I'll actually dip Amazon and Bridgewater more than Google and sure. Bridgewater. Sure. So I'll say I'll actually go one step back. The interesting thing we've learned now in this startup is how much culture needs to be aligned to business model. Mm-hmm. So Amazon has a bias for action culture, a lot of innovative ideas, but at the end, what do you deliver at the end of the day? And so you see like the culture is about bias for action, speed, getting things out the door, right? You need to deliver every day a package to a person. There's no time to play around with people's feelings and how it goes, but it's an actually great culture of a highly tight operational organization. And Bridgewater is the exact opposite. Bridgewater makes probably 10 decisions a year. Each decision, if it's good, can make billions of dollars. If it's bad, can lose billions of dollars. You're actually very afraid of somebody very charismatic coming in and convincing everybody and making a bad idea. And so you have a culture of sitting in the problem and sitting, understanding the person making the decision and questioning everything that's very aligned with a hedge fund kind of approach where the execution is not easy. I was on the execution. So, but it's almost like the trivial part of the business. Getting the ideas is the hard part where Amazon, the ideas are a dime a dozen. The execution is the hard part. Again, very much abstracted out. And you see both of these organizations are excellent because their culture is aligned with the product and the business and it's not and so now we're doing a small startup we're 10 employees we're building at the beginning and yet when we look at the culture i don't want to put teamwork or excellence like all these values that you just put for this it's like does our business model justify excellence is that's what's right for our business model for the product for the does the customer want us to have this culture and it's not a generic culture and so for us, things we're doing, we, we're building, I won't go too deep into it, but we're building a new way of telling people's digital stories about how you explain, how you build your profile, think about reinvented resumes. And a lot of ideas of truth and meritocracy I'm taking from Bridgewater, but a lot of things about how, um, how the experience people have and how much we give people comfort in a place where they feel comfortable to tell their stories, their true stories, and they feel comfortable. It's part of how we're treating our employees because it's true for the product and mm-hmm. true for the business model. And so if you ask my question, like I think to go back to the original question, 
the main thing I took from the Amazon culture, some things I took from the Bridgewater cultures, but the main thing I took is how aligned culture needs to be mm-hmm. with the business and how much that's a competitive advantage if you can build those things. So thank you everybody for joining us on that first podcast with Asaf. Uh, Charlie Rye, the Founders Dilemmas podcast. If you have any questions, please go to Founders Dilemmas podcast at gmail.com. Be sure to use the link in the show notes um, to get a copy to get a copy of this episode. You can get a copy of Dean's book, Founders Dilemma, and find out about his business programs, as well as get a copy of my book, Unlocking Greatness, and my weekly podcast, Unlocking Greatness, here in the show notes. Thanks for joining us and looking forward to seeing you next time.